0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Sports. Excuse me. Let me start that over. Mm-hmm. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Kerry Eggers about his new book, Jailblazers How the Portland Trailblazers Became the Bad Boys of Basketball. Kerry has covered Portland sports for more than 40 years, writing for the Portland Tribune since its inception in 2001. He is the author of six books, including Blazer's Profiles, Clyde the Glide, and A Civil War Rivalry, Oregon vs. Oregon State. Kerry Eggers, welcome to the show. Hey, Paul. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Great. Thanks for joining us. Kerry, um, I wonder if you could begin by telling the listeners a little bit about
1: yourself. Yeah, I'm, I'm an old-timer, Paul. I've been doing this for a long time. I uh, went to Oregon State, grew up in Corvallis, Oregon, I went to Oregon State. My dad was a sports information director at Oregon State, and uh, so I was around writers and the and, uh, sports uh, from a young age, decided that I wanted to do this for a living. Uh, I started uh, at the Oregon Journal uh, the day after I graduated from Oregon State in 1975, and worked there for seven years and then the Oregon Journal merged with the Oregonian. I became, uh, I worked for the Oregonian until 2001 and then the, the Portland Tribune, uh, came on uh, and, uh, it was founded and I, I've been there ever since as a columnist and, uh, and writer, Um I have written, actually, this is actually my seventh book, The Jailblazers, um, and, you know, this, the opportunity came about, I probably wouldn't have done this on, on my own, Paul, but I, uh, because it was a, uh, there's there certainly mixed feelings about that era. Uh, in Portland and, and the fans of the Blazers who appreciated that it was a very high level of basketball. They got to the conference finals twice and came very close to winning a title and had a lot of good years, but they also have had a lot of uh, misdeeds and, and uh, poor uh, behavior uh, from a lot of the players through that time. So anyway, um, I got a call from Skyhorse uh, Publishing in New York. Uh, well I guess it's been about three years ago now. And, and you know, so they, they the the publisher J- or the uh, representative uh, Jason Kathman told me he thought it was a book that could be of interest not only on the regional level but on the national level and. You know, I, I I thought about it and I said, you know what, I, maybe this is a story that should be told, and I guess I'm the guy to do it. So that that's how it came about, and uh, we, we it came out in in December. Right. Um, this you know I it's clear from reading this that this book
0: is so well researched. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about your process for researching the book?
1: Sure, yeah, you know, the first thing I did was I went through it one of the things people say, did you remember all these incidents and all these uh, anecdotes? No, absolutely not. I met, remembered some of them, but uh, you know, to refresh my memory, I went through every newspaper uh from uh let's see, it would be about 94-95. This book covers from about 94 to about 2006, so it's really a a 12-year look, you know, so it's several different groups of players, but I I read every paper from every sports section from about 94 to 2001 at the Oregonian, and when we, after we started at the Tribune from 2001 to 2006, so that took about three or four months, and then I began the interview process, my goal was to get to uh, about 100 people, I got to about 70 people, there were some that wouldn't talk about this, including Bob at the general manager, and uh, through the time. But I did, I got all the head coaches. There's four head coaches that were involved during that time. starting with PJ Carlissimo, Mike Dunleavy, Maurice Cheeks, and then Nate McMillan caught the end of it. Talked to all of them, talked to most of the assistant coaches. They were a really valuable resource. Uh, talked to 25 players, um, you know, and and got some great insight there. And then some, some auxiliary type people, uh, uh, what the, uh, Flight attendant for the uh, the team plane for nine years. She was really good. Uh, uh, Joey Crawford, the referee, and then two other referees that, that chose to be anonymous because they're still working. Um, they, they got Pete Simpson, the guy who worked the police beat uh, during that time, and had, had some very interesting observations. So. I tried to get a cross-section of people that could talk about it. I, I th- And then I used, of course, a lot of the quotes from that era. For instance, Scotty Pippen didn't want to cooperate with a book, but boy, he had some great things to say during that time that I brought back.
0: You started the book with an introdu- introduction about Game 7 of the 2000 Western Conference Finals. Can you talk a little bit about that game and why you chose to start the book there?
1: Well, that, that was the, I would say, the lightning rod that... Uh, you know it sort of started the a realization that maybe there was something really big wrong here and and it 's probably not fair because if you remember that game paul they had the, the the series was they were the blazers were down three to one this was the two thousand conference finals against the Lakers Lakers won three of the first four games came up to Portland. I'm sorry. Lost game five, lost game five in Los Angeles. Then Portland went back up to Portland in game six and won that to force a seventh game. The Blazers had had it going through a lot of that game. They were up by 15 late in the third quarter, and uh, there was a lot of people pretty much writing the Lakers off at that time and ex- expecting the Blazers to win and get into the and advance to the, uh, the the NBA finals against Indiana. Indiana had already wrapped up the East, but. Brian Shaw hit a shot that was from the side that somehow kissed off the backboard and went in right as the, at the as the buzzer sounded into the, the third quarter to get them within twelve and 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 then the blazers couldn't hit anything they they i think they went missed thirteen straight shots uh you know the shaq and kobe uh got got going and and the Lakers won that game and You know, people ask me, had the Blazers won that game, would it have changed everything? I I think it would have. I think the Blazers would have gone on and beaten the Pacers. I think they wouldn't have traded Brian Grant and Jermaine O'Neill and brought on Sean Kemp. And, you know, the whole scenario, the whole narrative of that era would have been changed.
0: So you mentioned uh, Bob Whitsitt before, and he's a central character in the book. I hesitate to use the word villain because I don't think he's necessarily necessarily portrayed as a bad person, but uh, he, of course, built these Portland Trailblazer teams. Um, Can you talk a little bit about Bob and his approach to team building?
1: Yeah, Bob had been the... uh, First of all, Paul Allen, the owner, uh, is from Seattle and continued to live through Seattle, the late owner, I should say. He he passed away last year, but um, he he, uh, had just actually bought the, the Blazers in 1988 and had continued to live in Seattle. And Bob Whitsitt, during the time, was the general manager for the Sonics and had had some good success up there. And when the Blazers lost twice in a row, if you remember, that group in the early 90s, Clyde Drexler-led teams, made it to the finals twice, lost to the Pistons in 90 to the Bulls in 92. But by 94... They lost twice in the first round. Paul Allen thought they should do better. He fired uh, Rick Adelman. Uh, Jeff Petrie resigned as general manager because of it, and that left a, a vacancy that was filled by Whitsitt, who uh, Allen obviously admired. And Whitsitt's idea on uh, running a team. Well, first of all, he had a, a owner now with the, the most largest yes of any owner in the league, probably in, of all of pro sports and even with the salary cap there was ways to maneuver it that they they used that to to build the highest payroll in the NBA for several years and and by a wide margin by the way in the early 2000s where they had wound up paying a 100,000 sorry 100 million extra in, in in luxury tax but his idea was I'm going to get I'm going to get collect as many good players as I can not worry too much about character or uh, just cohesion of the group, and let I'll leave that up to the coaches and and actually, the coaches and for the most part were okay with that, but it still created some problems through through the years when you got four point guards who all think they should be playing uh you know there's some dissension there there wasn't a tremendous amount of dissension, but there was a lot of character issues, including Rashid Wallace. Uh, you know, setting technical foul records that will never be broken. Uh, G.R. Ryder in the early years, an unbelievable amount of transgressions. And so, uh, you know, and Ruben Patterson came in after a modified plea of, of guilty for a, a, a rape of his nanny. And this was before, the year before that had signed him to a six-year free agent contract. So there was all sorts of issues through those years. I, I always, I always emphasize though, Paul, that you know, this book isn't just about a bunch of rounders. It, it, there was also a, a lot of character guys that played through that era. Uh, you know, I, I think of Brian Grant and Steve Kerr and Jermaine O'Neal and Steve Smith and, and even Pippen, although he had some issues, he was a great leader for that group. Chris Dudley, who ran for governor in the state of Oregon. So th- there was a lot of good people and a lot of good players, but also a lot of a lot of problems. You know, it, it, it's... Amazing. i a big basketball fan myself. Looking
0: back, there were so many, um, there were so many incidents that occurred during those years, uh, some of which I, I just completely forgot about, such as like Quintel Woods and the dog fighting incident. Mm-hmm. I completely forgot about that. You covered the team, of course, and I'm sure you knew about most of these incidents. Were there any major incidents that you heard about for the first time in the course of your research?
1: yeah I mean there were and you and know and nothing really comes to mind. I would say more it was I didn't realize the depth that, uh, of some of the things, for instance, the dog fighting uh you know Zach Randolph was involved in that too. he wasn't ever charged with it, but he certainly had dog fighting at his place in westland and 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 had you know had pit bulls and, and Quintel woods was the guy that got uh you know eventually prosecuted for it but Uh, You know, and and then you know, Zach was a guy that came in when Bonzi Wells and and uh, Rasheed Wallace were the leaders of the team, and. Those are his role models and so there there was a lot of incidents. Another guy that, that uh, you know who had some things happen with him was Gary Trent and I, I did talk to Gary for the book and he was great. I think Gary's come to the realization that he was pretty immature. He came from a horrible background, probably the worst background of any of these players, Paul. Uh with you know, parents in prison and, and drug dealer he was dealing drugs when he was fourteen. Here's a guy that's come out the other side and has done pretty darn well, and, and uh, he, he's now, a, a, I think, a personal trainer and coach in Minnesota. His son Gary Trent Jr. just finished his uh, rookie year for the Blazers. Nice kid, so good for Gary. But not all of the not all of the players have, you know, have that feeling. A lot of them feel like that they were misrepresented and that the Jail Blazers image was overblown.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, did did how did uh, players and executives that you spoke to, how did they feel about you writing this book? And I guess specifically the title of the book.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, we we debated, uh, you know, what what to title it, but honestly, that that's what the group is known as, and so uh, it was actually a, a mutual decision, and and they convinced me that it was it was the right thing to do, and I think it was. Um, yeah, you know these people have asked me did they actually spend time in jail when they were with the Blazers no there was none of them that uh, that did but it's just it's sort of a colloquialism right it's it's the image that they had of uh, there were a tremendous amount of transgressions one year uh, there was there was there didn't go 15 days without some sort of incident involving police or suspension or uh you know major fine that type of thing for for something the players had done so um, I don't think the players were thrilled about, I'm sure none of them were thrilled about the the, the, uh, the title of the book. Um, I think the ones that cooperated with me knew that I'd, I'd give it a fair, uh, you know, a balanced look. I, that's what I really tried to do. You know, i let, somebody said you should have been more forceful on what you wrote about, you know, more have more opinion in there. Well, I'd rather have the, the reader take a take a look at it and make a decision for themselves.
0: Do you think there was an identifiable low point to the
1: jailblazers era? Oh, people ask me that one, one incident that comes to mind, I, I can't remember exactly what year it was. I think it was oh one one or oh two, two uh, towards the end of the regular season. And they'd actually played pretty well. They were coming on and there was a game against the Lakers. I think it was on, well, I can't remember the date on it, but it was right at the end of the regular season. And, uh, Sabonis had, you know, was a great fl- flailer. He's another one, by the way. I should have mentioned. I wrote a lot about Arvidas. He's in Europe. I did not get a chance to talk to him, but I talked to everybody about him, and he was a w- beloved figure in Portland and with his teammates. But he also had a great habit of, it was, as a lot of Euro's do, of flailing and, and flopping, uh, and uh, as an art form. And, and he would did it in a game and. Fell back into Wallace and hit him in the face, and he was upset about it. Well, he did it again in this game, and I think he chipped a tooth of, 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 uh, of Wallace, and, and and Rashid was, you know, incensed about it. And a couple of timeouts later, it came to a head, and they walked over to the the uh, uh, to the sidelines to the bench, and he threw a towel on Sabonis's face, and and uh you know it was just totally uncalled for bill walton was calling the game that day and he was uh, over over the moon upset about it and uh, there was there was an incident in the locker room after that with with mike Dunleavy. and so i i you know that that might have been a catalyst to um you know there needed to be some changes made, and, and within a year or two, with a, within about two years, Paul Allen came to the realization that they they couldn't uh, just behave like this, and and which was fired, and they began the reclamation.
0: So as you mentioned, there were
1: coaches covered in this book in this
0: talk. I think Mike Dunleavy may have been there the longest. If it wasn't the longest, at the least he was there when they were kind of at their peak when they got to Game Seven of the Western Conference Finals.
1: you us a little bit about his. Relationship with with this cast of characters i think mike Dunleavy was the best coach during that time he he was uh he'd come from the lakers and had got gotten them to the nba finals one year this is he'd been there before then he was in milwaukee for four years where he was also he was the general manager and the coach and he came to portland and was just the coach and worked with witsit and um uh, you know, he did not condone, uh, I, Mike was fantastic. I thought he was one of the greatest sources. Mike was at Tulane at the time. I think he's no longer there, but, uh, he, he, uh, he was a great source for me and, you know, giving me some behind the scenes look at what happened with that team. It was, it was difficult because you're right. He, he had some good teams. He was the one that took them to the conference finals twice, two years in a row, and they had some really good talent, but, um, you know, the character issues played a part and then also, uh, in some cases, too many players and, and a couple of unhappy players that weren't playing. So, um, you know, he was walking a tight rope. He had Rashid Wallace trying to keep him under control. Uh, which did not work, and uh, and then he had he had a big blow up in the locker room that I described in the book with Mike, and Mike stood up to him, and so you know, I, I felt bad for Mike, in that I thought he was a good coach, and it was too bad that he he was let go of, of his position after the two thousand one season.
0: Scotty Pippen to me is kind of a, a very interesting character in this book because, of course, he you know he'd won championships. He knew what it meant to be a professional. He knew what it meant to come to work every day. Um he knew how you're supposed to carry yourself when you're professional. Um and it must have been just uh extremely difficult for him to be around some of these you know,
1: knuckleheads for lack of a better word. Um how did how did Pippa deal with all of this? Yeah, you you're absolutely right on everything you said there, Paul, and and you know he had his behavioral issues too if you remember the refusing to be in there at the end he was upset when when Phil Jackson had Kukot shoot the shot at the end of the game and so he he sure, didn't I'm have a clean that. I remember that well <laughs> <laughs> that's right so you know he 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 didn't have a clean sheet however th- this is later in his career i think he'd grown up some and you're right he he knew what it took to be a champion he knew what it took to win and he knew that team had what it it took to win but uh, his frustration i i, I love the you know when i when i think about it he was so open with me and i don't know probably some of the other writers during the time uh, about you know what was going on and, and i you know i was disappointed that he, that he decided not to talk to me now as i'm writing the book but he he was phenomenal during that time and i use a lot of those quotes and and boy did he let bob Woods had it a couple of times <laughs> and uh I, you know as I, as I went back and looked over some of the stuff that he told me i was surprised that he didn't get in trouble for being so open and transparent about what was happening
0: i, I have to say my favorite part of the book was the last chapter
1: um which consisted of course
0: of people uh reflecting back on that era i thought that was It's just very interesting how you've done that. You've read, I don't know, how many sports books over the years. And um, this was kind of a different approach. I hadn't really seen that before, where you kind of had this whole retrospective, more than just like a simple epilogue, but like a whole
1: chapter on it. Um, So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that chapter yeah thanks paul i It's my favorite chapter too and i I didn't you know when I collected all the information and and the quotes i didn't and the after the interviews I didn't know how I was going to put it together and I did intersperse some of the stuff through the book. Uh, for the the contemporary stuff uh, through the book, uh, including a lot of stuff by guys like Rod Strickland. and uh, um, Rod was really good, but Rod kind of was, was right at the start of it, if you remember, when, when he had a problems with P.J. Carlissimo, and he wasn't really a jailblazer, although he was. He came back for one season, part of a season, but during that early part wasn't really the jailblazer era. It really started when J.R. Ryder came to the team, but uh, so uh, anyway, I decided, you know, I thought, well, it's going to be confusing to the reader if I intersperse too much of this stuff now as opposed to using the stuff then. So so I said, okay, I'm going to try to put most of the best stuff at the end and hope that people will get through the book. It's a long book. It's a 500-page book. And and everybody has told me what you've told. Most people have told me that they enjoyed that the most. And, and you know, it is interesting to hear all the different People and you'll hear so many, you know, Steve Kerr and 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 Dudley and Brian Grant and and then uh, the referees and and I'm you know the, that's where I put the, uh, the the long section with Stephanie walker Smith. The the uh, uh, the uh, she was the uh, you know the gal working the plane for nine years and she had so many so many great stories. So basically, that last chapter is a storytelling, and and I hope the the readers appreciated it.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Stephanie. I think I think you called her Stevie in the book. Is that what it was?
1: Stebbie Yeah, that was her yeah, nickname. Stephanie. Stebby. Yeah. Um, I, I, and it's Lechness. I, I always say Lochness. I'm sorry about that, Steph. Yeah, she was. Uh,
0: she was fantastic. I mean, she told great stories as you said, and she brought a different perspective because you know the the locker room could be such an insular place, and here you have someone who's kind of out in the real world, who you know. How to window into that locker room type atmosphere. And she just had some great insight and, like you said, great stories. I wonder how you came in touch with her, how you ended up talking to her. Yeah, you know, I didn't
1: know her personally. I had a couple of people that were uh, employees and former employees that so you ought to talk to her, and she was great. She was very revealing and open about it, and uh, she had great affection for a lot of the players, including Wallace, uh, who was one of her favorites, and, and and you know, I believe he sent her... Uh, Some sort of a gift when she left the team while he was still there, and so you know you see different sides of these guys. Wallace was really an interesting character in that his his you know Wallace on-court image was of a raging maniac almost at times. His his teammates almost universally loved him, and, and I, I tried to reflect that in the book, that he, he was considered a great teammate, and uh, he was a very good player. Uh, not as good a player as he could have been, I I think, if he'd have worked harder and had wanted to be more of a leader. He wasn't a leader, and if he was leading, he was leading in the wrong direction.
0: Yeah, and speaking of going in the wrong direction, you mentioned J.R. Ryder. Is he going J.R.
1: these days? I, I don't know. I, I I hear he's doing pretty well though. He he works in Phoenix. I think he's doing camps and working with kids, and that's a good thing. You know, he he was a guy that could be very charming, uh, and he what he's a, he's he's a he's got a bright side to him. He's he's, he's a well-spoken guy, but uh, boy, he he had so he he just didn't have any. Uh, discipline. He didn't have the discipline that he needed to become the great player he could have been. Yeah. Because he was a tremendous talent. Yeah, um, he, he was an all-star talent that never made the all-star game. Yeah. How do the Portland fans
0: look back on that era now?
1: I, I'm sorry? How do the Portland fans look back on that I think they look back, as I said, with mixed emotions. And I think... Um, you know, during that time it was an embarrassment, uh, to the city because it's a, it's still a small town. It's growing now, but during that time, it was a you know a small market uh, team that just had the Blazers, uh, the Portland Timbers are the other professional team in town, and 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 the, the, uh, now they're with MLS and doing well, but they're not one of the big four sports like hockey, football, basketball, or baseball. So there, you know, there was a this is our team type of mentality, and we don't want. All these issues to uh, taint our, you know, we, we these guys are beloved members of our community. They shouldn't be doing some of this stuff. So I think they put up with it pretty well until the Blazers started not winning, uh, you know, in the playoffs. And and then you notice people saying, "Oh, I'm getting tired of this." Uh, the the uh, I believe they had thirteen thousand season tickets uh, sold. For several years, and then they went down to about 8,000 over a two year period. And that was pretty much the indication of Paul Allen that things needed to be changed about 2003, 2004.
0: Do you think we could ever have a team like the Blazers again?
1: No, I think it's unprecedented and, and it will not happen again because I don't think the NBA would. I don't think it will happen in pro sports again because none of the leagues would allow that to happen and, and I don't think the communities would allow it to happen and, I, and I, I don't think the ownerships would allow it to happen.
0: Is there a player in the book whose reputation among his teammates or the organization is very different than his public image?
1: Well I think Wallace is, is the answer to that. I mean he's the guy that you look at as, as you know never really been able to control his emotions on the court. He you know he even his, to his last season with the Boston Celtics I think he got 17 technicals in 41 games or something mm-hmm. like that and, you know but uh I, I and also not not the greatest guy with the fans. He could be very he was good with kids and and uh you know, most players are and and that's good, but not, not so great with adults at times and certainly not good with the media or, or with the referees and, and uh but again very very popular teammate, a likable guy was what they all said and, and uh now he's coaching high school basketball in North Carolina. Good good for Rashid.
0: Yeah. Okay, Carrie, I think I've taken enough of your time. Just one final question. Do you plan on writing another book in the near future?
1: Well, uh thank you for asking, Paul. I I uh I'm I've got one more year before I retire from the Tribune uh, in July of 2020 and then after that it's you know it's just too much when you're trying to hold on a job and have a family and a relationship and and then also try to write a book. It just takes over your life. You just um you know, it consumes you and, and so once I retire, I'm, I I the first thing I'd like to do is take a look at all the stories I've I've got I've got access to all the stories I've written through a forty, it's forty-four, be forty-five year career, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to pick out, you know, a, a fifty or hundred, I don't know how many stories that I, I wrote, and then, you know, reprint them, and, and then let's take a look at what happened after I wrote those stories to the people, and, you know, from then on I'll, I'll be open to, you know, projects through the years, and I hope I'll be able to do a few more. Sounds great. So once again. For our
0: listeners, uh, Carrie's book is called Jailblazers How the Portland Jailblazers Became the Bad Boys of Basketball. It's a great read. I highly recommend it. Um, And, Carrie, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed
1: this. Thanks again, Paul. Me too. Okay, take care.